Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last podcast, I began to discuss the narrator slash character Marlowe in Conrad's story, Youth. Now, by the end of the podcast, I was just getting started. (laughs) And I guess that is just the way it goes with a half-hour show. So I tend to always uh, run out of time before I can say all that I want to say. So for today's program, what I want to do is I want to continue my discussion of the character Marlowe. And he is a unique character. We will be spending a lot of time with him over the next couple months. Uh, Obviously, we're being introduced to him here in youth. Uh, We're going to learn more about him when we get into Heart of Darkness and then also uh, when we get into Lord Jim. But how do we learn and what do we learn about Marlowe? And the thing is, we have to realize that we actually learn it from Marlowe. And and, uh, uh, we learn so much about him by his descriptions of the other characters, but also the stories he tells us. And, of course, the title of these programs is Marlowe, the Storyteller, because he is a great storyteller. Now, Marso, uh, excuse me. Now, Marlowe is also not shy about telling us his opinions or his conjectures on the matters at hand. But as we, as we start with youth, it, it really is, it's, it's uh, kind of like the beginning of Marlowe, or even as we discussed in the last podcast, He's, he's a totally created character, but uh, Conrad wants us to believe that he was one of his best friends and that he met him at a, like a resort, an, a health resort. And of course, uh, that, that helps him come alive for us. But uh, you really have to read the book, I think. You really have to read the story and really think about what you're reading. You have to meditate on what Marlowe is saying and, and why he's giving us the perspectives he's giving. But I think on the last program I said that uh, that he was about 20 at this time. Actually, he would have been about, Marla would have been about 22 when the, when youth opens. And and uh, uh, it said that, uh, uh, he, he, he said that he was 42 um, to the crew that was on the on this uh, ship with him. And so, uh, but, but one of the things I think is really great about the, the opening of this story is that Marlowe lets us see things through youthful eyes. In other words, he may be in his 40s as the narrator, but it's it's uh, very clear that he can capture the maybe the brilliance of youth or, or maybe he can capture the exuberance of youth, even by telling the story. And, of course, that, that makes him a great storyteller. And... I want to come back to a paragraph that I started to read the last time. I think I also finished it. But but one thing we have to learn about Marlowe here is that he really does see life through very youthful eyes. And he's very excited about what he's doing. And, uh, of course, if hopefully you're reading uh, in, into the story already and you already begin to realize 
that uh, his his first voyage at second mate is full of nothing but problems. <laughs> and uh, he actually takes a lot of criticism, or those on his ship take a lot of criticism from even public around the wharfs, and uh, uh, because it seems like the Judea can't even get out of uh, you know English waters to go to Bangkok. But anyway, uh, I'm just going to read to you on page eight again, and this is. Uh, again, it's my page eight uh, because I have the hardback copy. And as I said last time, it'd be good if you could find this collection. And it really does have a lot of information in it. But he's talking about how the uh, when he met the ship's captain, that the, the, the captain said, "Okay, you want to come on, you know, a like a merchant ship? Um, then you're going to have to work." And he said, "Hey, I can do it." And he said, "Okay, if you think you can do it, just join tomorrow." So he breaks in and he says, I joined tomorrow. It was 22 years ago and I was just 20. And so I may have gotten that, <laughs> that uh, timing or that date uh, again. Um, uh, but I think he's 42 when he's telling the story, but he was 20 when he was on the ship. So maybe, maybe we'll uh, reconcile that again. I think I, but I, uh, in case I got that wrong, I am sorry. But anyway, it really is very little. It doesn't matter. Anyway, he goes on to say, How time passes. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Fancy, second mate for the first time, a really responsible officer. I wouldn't have thrown up my new billet for a fortune. In other words, he wouldn't throw his wallet away for that. He said, the mate looked me over carefully. He was also an old chap, but of another stamp. He had a Roman nose, a snow-white, long beard, and his name was Man. But he insisted that it should be pronounced Man. I just did that for him. He said, he was well-connected, yet there was something wrong with his luck, and he had never got on. So there, there is the first observation. He has only come in contact with his mate like briefly, it may have been within the last hour, and he already is making this evaluation. Somehow he was down, down on his luck, and he had never got on. So that's one thing we have to, to learn about Marlowe from reading the story, is he is an observer, but he's also quick to make judgments about what he sees. And so, uh, uh, again, I, th- I think we want to know that about him as we go through the story and to really, really think about this. Now he goes on to say, as to the captain, he had been for years in coasters, and that's the type of ship that just would go up and down the coast, uh, let's say, of England. says, then in the Mediterranean, at last in the West Indian trade, he had never been around the Capes. And uh, so, so here we're getting all this history about the captain, and we have to ask ourselves, how did he learn this so quickly? Um, so either he's not telling us all of the story or he's just giving us what we need to, let's say, move the story along. But what he means there by being around the Capes, this, this captain had never been around Cape Horn. And so, you know, for, for all sailmen, sailors and, and uh, seamen, when you, at that time, going around the Cape Horn was a big deal. It, was, it, was, uh, it meant a lot. He said he could write... He, he could just write a kind of sketchy hand and didn't care for writing at all. All right, so he's just met the captain. How does he know all this? And uh, it really does add, certainly, depth to the story. And so, so here's, here's, a, here's a captain, and he's got a sketchy hand. In other words, his handwriting isn't very good. 
and uh, he doesn't care for writing at all. And so, so why he decides to tell us that, well, we have to see if that means something for later in the story. He said both were thorough good seamen, of course, and between those two old chaps, I felt like a small boy between two grandfathers. So I think that does also tell us a lot about Marlowe. He's, uh, here he is. He's, remember now, he's, he's in his 40s, and he's going back to when he was just uh, 20. And he's telling us that, that even though, well, maybe the mate didn't get along so well, or maybe he was down on his luck, and maybe the captain had a sketchy hand, or maybe the, 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 uh, the captain didn't like writing at all, he still has an awful lot of respect for them. And he says, like, he was like a small child, you know, with two grandfathers. And so, so I, I think that, that says a little bit more about Marlowe's character, that he does seem to have, you know, respect for, let's say, uh, maybe the authority that's on the ship, uh, maybe, uh, maybe older seamen. Uh, remember now, this is, uh, he's still pretty young. He's like in his 20s. And so uh, he really hasn't maybe had all that experience. But, but uh, I'm going to just go over to page nine and just show you how excited he was. And, uh, um, you know, he, he really wanted to go to Bangkok. He was excited to go to Bangkok. This would be in the middle of the page nine. It says, we left London in, a ballast, in ballast, meaning sand ballast. And so, so essentially they were going to pick up a load of coal and they needed to have ballast in the ship. So they filled the ship with sand in order to give it the ballast, the same ballast that the coal would have. And uh, so here, if you really read this story, and then don't just skip over things. Uh, my wife is really good at that. If, if it's a detail she doesn't think is important, she just skips over it. So she's not here to defend herself today. But uh, she, uh, she wants to get back in the studio because she she's reading this uh, story right along with us. But anyway, they, they, had, they got enough ballast so they could go and uh, he said they were getting ready to load a cargo of coal in a northern port for Bangkok. He went, Bangkok, I thrilled. I had been six years at sea, but had only seen Melbourne and Sydney. Very good places, charming places in their way, but Bangkok. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think uh, that uh, all of us, and sometimes or another, maybe not all of us, some of us, I know, I think I've... I've talked to, to this with my students. I originally wanted to go into the Navy um, when I was uh, in, you know, graduating from high school. There was still a draft at that time. And I thought, well, instead of being drafted, I'd like to choose what I'm going to do. And uh, so I thought, well, the Navy would be really, it's kind of romantic and fascinating. But then as it turns out, by the time I graduated, they didn't have the draft anymore. And I decided to go on to college. And so... Uh, but a afterwards, I found out that <laughs> the Navy probably wasn't the best place for me to be anyway. And so, so, but, but look at, look at him. Look at Marlowe. He's just excited. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so, so there's really something to be said, I think, about youth. And uh, one, one of the things I think we have to, to look at in the book is that he really, uh, really talks about youth quite a book, especially at the beginning. And uh, I'm, I'm going to read this. Probably I'll read this a, a couple times today. But uh, he loves the challenges of youth. And uh, 
this is on page 14. I think I read this to you uh, before. And if, if I have, uh, that's okay. You probably could hear it again anyway. But this is in the middle of the page. And again, it's my page 14, so you're going to have to find this depending on what volume of book you are using. He says, Oh, youth, the strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it. To me, she was uh, not an old rattletrap carting about in a world of coal for a freight. To me, she was the endeavor, the test, the trial of life. And of course, he's, he's uh, talking about being on the Judea. Judea. And so we're going to also come back to that subject as well. But uh, uh, again, uh, you know, people can exalt in their youth. And it, it really seems to me that as I go through this story that, you know, sometimes there are some real flaws in youth as well. But, uh, um, I mean, some you, uh, as youth, I think we all have made our mistakes. And so... Uh, as we go through the story, we'll see if this becomes true of, of the young Marlowe as well. But I think another thing that we want to just uh, say about Marlowe is that he is an observer of people. And uh, I know one of the things that I think is my one of my favorite things to do is to, to really watch people. I mean, not be intrusive, but, but uh, if I go to a mall, sometimes it's nice just to sit there with a cup of coffee and just look at all the people and uh, you know, sometimes I wonder what, what you know, what's their life story? What, what is it really like for them? And so, uh, uh, you know, my wife knows I like to do that, and she just cautions me to not look weird when I do it. So, so let's let's talk about um, uh, some of the people that he observes. And this is really quickly in uh, early in the book. I should say not quickly. It's very early in the book. I'm going to go to page nine again, and he's going to start talking about. Uh, the uh, one of the uh, men on the ship, and uh, uh, he is—he was a pilot. He was a North Sea pilot, so he's helping to um, steer the ship. But his name is German, and he goes. He says, "We worked out of the Thames under canvas with the North Sea pilot on board. His name was German, and he dodged all day, uh, uh, all day long about the galley." Um, drying his handkerchief before the stove. Apparently, he never slept. He was a dismal man with a perpetual tear sparkling at the end of his, his nose who either had been in trouble or was in trouble or expected to be in trouble. Couldn't be happy unless something went wrong. He uh, mistrusted my youth, my common sense, my seamanship, and made a point of showing it in a hundred little ways. And so, so here... Marlowe is revealing things about himself, but it's actually in comparison to a, to a, you know the pilot on the ship, and uh, you know he did not really like the fact that uh, this German really did not think he was up to snuff or up to up to the job, and so you know his his description of him, and of course we know this is just a story, but but <laughs> I would like to have seen German for myself. You know, what did he really look like? Did he really have this drippy nose all the time? Was he was he really a whiner? Um, you know, it, I, I think we'd have to say that Marlowe could be uh, somewhat, um, you know, uh, selfishly one-sided at times. Anyway, uh, but that that is some of the folly of youth, but it's even some folly of adults as well. It says, uh, it says he, he mistrusted my youth, my common sense, my seamanship, and made a point of showing it in a hundred little ways. I dare say 
um, he was right. It seems to me I knew very little then, and I know not much nor, nor excuse me, it, it, I dare say he was right. It seems to me I knew very little then, and I know not much more now. But, there's all, you know, after that nice statement, but I cherish a hate for that German to this day. <laughs> so, so you can see that uh, uh, here, you know, Marlowe is willing to admit now as a 40-year-old that, yeah, he did, he did make some mistakes. Uh, German may have had a, a pretty fair observation of him, but he still hates the man. <laughs> he says to this day, so he's in his 40s and still is holding hate for German. And, uh, you know, so, so in some ways, uh, we're seeing that, that Marlowe probably can, can be somewhat of a complex character. And, of course, um, uh, I think Conrad is absolutely brilliant at creating complex characters. And, of course, I, like I said with Marlowe, we're going to see this change over the next couple, uh, well, the two, the next two novels, uh, I, I would say that, that uh, Heart of Darkness is a novella, but Lord Jim is like a full-fledged novel. All right. Uh, I think a, another thing about Marlowe, let's say in terms, in terms of the way he's an observer of people, he has a very favorable feeling towards the captain, and that was Captain Beard and his wife. And this, this is just slips over to page 10 in my book. And... Uh, uh, we're going to come back to this page several times for for different reasons as we go through this today. If we get through it all the day, if not, we've got another half a program for the next time. So uh, we're breaking into the middle of the scene here, and it's it's when the, the uh, you know the Judea is finally out, and it's it's in uh, the Channel, I guess, uh, between France and and England, and there's a gale, which uh, probably happens all the time on the Channel. Uh, I know I have a daughter that lives in England, and she's been on the channel when it's been in a gale, and it's not very nice, I guess. But this is in the middle of page 10. He says, uh, On the third day, the gale died out, and by and by, a North County tug picked us up. We took 16 days in all to get from London to the Tyne. When we got into the dock, we we had lost our turn for loading, and they hauled us off to a tier where we remained for a month. So th- this is this is kind of like the undercurrent the undercurrent theme of this story is this Judea just has one problem after another, but here here's a bright side that happens even when they they can't get moving, you know they they can't get really on their way to Bangkok. He goes on to say, Mrs. Mrs. Beard, the captain's name was Beard. He, that's in parentheses, came from Colchester to see the old man. She lived on board. And so uh, I guess that was common at that time. The crew of runners had left, and essentially, uh, all you listeners out there, a crew of runners. These are these are uh, shipmates that just generally are temporary workers. They're like temporary employees. They're not they're not going to be with the ship forever. They're just there for a short time. He said the crew of runners had left, and there remained only the officers, one boy, and the steward, a mulatto who answer to the name of Abraham. We're going to come to Abraham here in a few minutes. It says, Mrs. Beard was an old woman with a face all wrinkled, uh, ruddy like a winter apple, and the figure of a young girl. Now, that, that's a description, and, and you can really get a good image of what this woman would have looked like. 
And uh, I, I think all of you out there know winter apples are all wrinkled. <laughs> you know, they're all wrinkly and, you know, the skin could look like it's hanging down. But she had the figure of a young girl. So, uh, you know, who knows? This, uh, who knows what she really looked like? So anyway, I guess we shouldn't drift our imagination too far. Anyway, she caught sight of me once, sewing on a button, and insisted on having my shirts to repair. This was something different from the captain's wives I had known on board crack clippers. When I brought her the shirt, she said, and the socks, they want mending, I am sure, and John's, or Captain Beard's things, are all in order now. She said, I would be glad of something to do. He goes on to say, bless the old woman, she overhauled my outfit for me, and meantime, I read for the first time Sarda Restartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. I didn't understand much of the first then, but I remember I preferred the soldier to the philosopher at the time, a preference which life has only confirmed. One was a man, the other was either more or less. However, they are both dead, and Mrs. Beard is dead, and youth, strength, genius, thoughts, achievements, simple hearts, all dies, no matter. So there I would think we were getting our first little bit of philosophy from Marlowe. And he's saying, this is the way life is. All people have to die, no matter. And so, so there is some philosophy now entering into the story. Now, I think it's interesting if you, if you look at that, and, and I want to talk about this just a little bit more as well. But notice uh, that um, Marlowe was able to take care of his own clothes. He was sewing on a button. Um, I don't know if he could darn his own socks. But, but essentially what Mrs. Beard did for him, he took this burden off of him. And what did he do with his time? You know, did, did he waste it? And uh, uh, no, he didn't. It says that, that uh, he was able to read Sartor Restartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. Now, I'm going to explain what that is here in a few minutes. But, but uh, uh, he did not waste his time, even as a youth. <clears throat> he may have been in his 20s, but he was a reader. And I think, I think we, we can, uh, as we go through this story, and I'm going to bring another point up here, and like I said, just a few minutes, that... Um, you know, we're going to see that um, uh, he, this uh, Marlowe is, has a culture behind him. He loves literature, and uh, you know, he spends time with it. And so, so he's not just this um, second mate. He really uh, has some, some uh, education, and he really has some culture behind him. Now, one, one of the things that um, is probably something we should say about him is um, Marlowe is really kind of harsh about the weakness of others. And so, you know, that they, there is a proverb that say, the young men glory in their strength. And I think at, at this point in Marlowe's life, um, you know, when he's in his 20s, he really did glory in his strength, in his youth. And um, the, the, the uh, thing I want to talk about now is, is his criticism of the cabin boy Abraham. And uh, uh, if you ever read Moby Dick, uh, this, this uh, cabin boy reminds me of Pip uh, from Moby Dick. But uh, here in the Gale, um, you know, the, there was uh, some real problems going on 
And uh, he even says one night when, when tied to the mast, as I explained, we were pumping on. Well, actually, I'm, I'm getting this situation mixed up. This is during the pumping. I want to talk about that in a bit. So the, 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 the Judea had holes, and uh, they had to pump it to, to stay afloat. But we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I'm going to go to, the, to uh, the bottom of page 14. It says, After that thump, the ship kept quiet for a while, and the thing, whatever it was, struck my leg again. So they were trying to pump out the ship, and uh, there were, there was, uh, they were sitting lower and lower in the water, and so the water was actually getting on top of the ship as well. And so essentially what, what uh, thumped his leg was a skillet, and uh, that told him that the deckhouse was gone. And so this moves to page 15. He says, There was a deckhouse forward which contained the galley, the cook's berth, and the quarters of the crew. As we expected for days to see it swept away, the hands had been ordered to, to sleep in the cabin, the only safe place in the ship. The steward, Abraham, however, persisted in clinging to his berth, stupidly, like a mule, from sheer fright, I believe, clinging to his berth, uh, clinging like an animal, excuse me, like an animal that won't leave a stable falling in an earthquake. So we went to look for him. It was a chancing death. Um, since one out of our lashings, we were, we were exposed as if on a raft. So when they were pumping the ship, they were also lashed to the top of the ship so that they didn't drown or get swept overboard. So they had to, to uh, unleash themselves from the mast. He said, but we went. The house was shattered as if a shell had exploded inside. Most of it had gone overboard. Stove, men's quarters, their property, all was gone, but two posts, holding a portion of the bulkhead to which Abraham's bunk was attached, remained as if by a miracle. We groped in the ruins and, and uh, came upon this, and there he was, sitting in his bunk, surrounded by foam and wreckage, jabbering cheerfully to himself. He was out of his mind completely and forever mad, and this sudden shock coming upon the fag end of his endurance. And so he was just worn out. He said, we snatched him up, lugged him aft, pitched him headfirst down the cabin companion. You understand, there was no time to carry him down with infinite precautions and wait to see how he got on. Those below would pick him up at the bottom of the stairs all right. We were in a hurry to get back to the pumps. That business could not wait. A bad leak is an inhuman thing. And so, so here he's uh, pretty hard on Abraham, and so uh, uh, that's I think that's part of part of his uh, personality. All right, well, I think uh, one thing um, I want to go back to is uh, back to page four of um, the book, and uh, Marlow Marlow tries to tell us that. Um, uh, this is a feat of memory. This, uh, you know, the the book, or the story of Marlowe, and the, the the thing is, is what I want to just introduce here is that um, essentially what what um, Conrad wants us to believe is that uh, you know th- this is all real and it's all that. But he he goes to the bottom of page four. He says one more remark may be added. He said youth is a feat of memory. It is a record of experience, but that experience in its facts, in its inwardness, and in its outward coloring begins and ends in myself. And so, so the, the thing is, <clears throat> uh, Conrad has, has made the comments that, that this was a feat of memory for him to, to actually write this story. 
when actually I think historically we know he's had a diary and and he probably had a lot of these facts done. But uh, most critics or scholars on this story know that he altered the facts. But uh, he was on the ship Judea, or I mean, I should say, not say it this way, the ship Judea is the Palestine, which was the first ship that, that Conrad was on. And he even talks in the story about, you know, he's really looking forward to going to Bangkok. He'd already been to Melbourne, or in other words, he'd already been in Australia. And actually, the Palestine um, had the same problems as the Judea, or similar problems. They weren't exactly the same. Uh, when when he was sailing through Australia, so you can see he he does change the facts, and so so Marlowe wants us to believe this is not autobiographical, but in some ways I I'm going to say, from my limited understanding of it, that I think it is partly autobiographical. All right, now one thing I think is interesting to say about Marlowe here as well. And uh, I think it does kind of indicate that, um, uh, how would you say it, that um, he is really Conrad, or he's, he's very close to Conrad. And, and that is the, the point that Marlowe is a reader. So, you know, on, on page 10, uh, again, I'm going to read this uh, for you. It says, bless the old woman. He's talking about Mrs. Beard. She overhauled my outfit for me. In the meantime... I read for the first time Sartre Restartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. I didn't understand much of the first then, of the first then, but I remember I preferred the soldier to the philosopher at that time. And so, so if you go, uh, what what I do is I, what I have here with me is I have the notes to this, and um, uh, any good book. When there's something uh, most people today are not going to know, you know, what the books are that he was talking about, like Sartre Restartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. And so the, the uh, people that published this put this note at the back of the story. It says, and this is like page 196 of my book. It says, Sartre Restartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. Uh, uh, Sartre Restartus was by Thomas Carlyle. A ride to Kiva, Travels and Adventures in Central Asia, was by Captain Frederick Burnaby. So Carlyle would be the philosopher, and then Burnaby would have been the, the ship's captain. And so so uh, that's definitely a Conrad uh, implant into that. Now, also, if you, uh, if you look at um, another part of the story, there's one time where... Um, the ship is really a dock, and then Marlowe goes into the um, and into London. He he buys some things, and he goes to Regent Street. And what he buys is Byron's works, and so so he's really uh, you know into even poetry. And so I think that says says a lot for us. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time I'll talk about the unnoticed character in Joseph Conrad's novella Youth. And, of course, we'll be talking more about Marlowe the, all the way through the story. Now, you can buy Youth at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good-use copy at abebooks.com. 
you may also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Now, of course, you can also check your local library, but you'll need to call to make sure they're even open. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.